I'm Celine Williams, and welcome to the Leading Through Crisis podcast, a conversation series exploring resiliency and leadership in challenging times. My <laughs> my guest today is Teresa Vatsa, who is an executive coach and leadership authority for ambitious and successful women working in high-pressure jobs. Using her 20 years, 20 plus years experience working in the executive and C-suite, Teresa is now on a serious mission to help women face their personal reckoning and achieve greatness without the grind. Welcome to the show, Teresa. Thank you, Celine. Glad to be back. I'm excited to have you and to talk to you. I know we've spoken uh, in other settings, but not about leading through crisis. So I'm excited to get into this with you. Um, and as you know, per usual, I always start by asking, what when you hear leading through crisis what does that mean for you or what comes up for you mm -hmm. the first thing that comes up to me is is more around adversity right mm. so an adversity can be both a tremendous growing experience but it can also be incredibly challenged so not all crisis is for is negative but when I think of leading through crisis, I think of the emotional roller coaster, the changes that individuals, employees, organizations go through when they are trying to navigate really unknown waters or where there's uncertainty in their in their business and their people, in their revenues and profits and targets and all of those different things. It's really about when we see disruption happening, whether on the global scale as it as we see all the time now, but even on the more localized scale too, as it relates to people's personal lives and, and their professional lives. It's any disruption that starts to create an emotional change in both your nervous system and in how you go about achieving results. So the leadership piece of that, what does that like what comes to mind for you about that side of it specifically, because, you know, working with women, the way that you work with women, I think that, mm -hmm. um, the broad generalization, I'm not saying this is the truth, but I think oftentimes women lead the way women lead looks different than how men lead. And I think we mm -hmm. see that in change and crisis. Yeah. Uh, and it may not look the way we expect, or it may not like, I, I'm curious you know, what your thoughts are on that or what you've seen in that regard and what that kind of looks like. Yeah, that's, oh, that's such an important point that you made there, Celine, because I think evolutionary wise, if you look going to look at it that way, women have been conditioned to be nurturers and to take care of people. And so I think that also translates in a crisis and I see that a lot with my clients who are females, because if they are leading teams, it is not unusual for me to see the high levels of burnout, which is backed up by statistics, as well as what I see in my client base. And the reason is because they are often taking care of other people. So other people can be team members, it can be their boss, it, and then you have to then extrapolate it to their personal life. They're taking care of family members oftentimes. And if it's not family members, it's cats and dogs and other, other people in their life. It could be elder care. It could be a number of things. And so I think the reason it's different for women is because we have been, you know, conditioned to be the ones that are taking care 
of others. And that's why we see stats like 60% of women are burnt out and more women are burning out than men are. And I think the you can't escape the fact, and I, I feel like a broken record when I always say this, but it's the truth that it's not, it hasn't died. That belief has not died that women are primary caregivers. Mm-hmm. And that also shows up in in the organizational setting as well. I think that's a I I think that's a really important point. And it's really interesting when I think about the female leaders that I have known or know and how the nurturing and caregiving shows up on their teams in how they lead. And it's very different even than mm-hmm. the male leaders who are connected and caring and coming from a place of compassion. It still looks different and it shows up mm-hmm. differently. And I think ultimately it impacts them differently. Yeah. And I think also you're raising a, a good point because one of the things in which we can do, and I, and I do this with some of my female clients is challenge their widely held beliefs about what taking care of looks like. So, you know, it could be about just becoming much more precise about the questions that they ask and the updates that they're asking for, so on and so forth, but not to the expense of abandoning their feminine leadership. So I don't want this to become a thing where it's like, you have to act like a guy, for example, to be able to lead effectively and care for your team. Sometimes the best kind of care comes from actually empowering people to figure things out on their own. And so sometimes we work on the tiniest tweaks where it's just about what questions can you ask that leave your team feeling empowered and leave you feeling like you have more bandwidth available to focus on more higher level strategic work rather than making sure everyone is okay. And I think this, and actually that raises a second point is this wanting our team members to be okay is another reason I think we can get so caught up in that uh, taking care trap and it's, and it's, you know, partly because we want to be liked and we want to be validated and we want to be shown as caregivers. And so there's a little bit of validation that sometimes sneaks in there mm. unknowingly. And it's not uncommon with high achievers, right? High achievers are high performers, but they're relentlessly, relentlessly self-critical. And so they're always trying to, you know, massage how they might be perceived. So when they're doing that, they could come across at times being or taking over responsibility for other people. And that over responsibility or what I call overcare can then lead to burnout. It can lead to just too much stress because you're over identifying with too many things. Uh, So I want to, I want to go. I'm going to ask two different questions. So the first mm-hmm. one is um, around the idea of taking, making sure your team is okay, making sure the people around you are okay, which is one of the things that you said. I'm curious how much of that. So I'm going to share perspective and ask a question. So let me, yeah. so I think I see a lot of male leaders who 
not all of them obviously, but who do genuinely care about the people on their team and they mm -hmm. want them to be okay. Mm -hmm. And they don't take responsibility for that person's okayness, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And it sounds like, because you mentioned the word responsibility in there, it sounds like women, again, broad generalizations, obviously broad, not true of yeah. everyone, like we're caveating yeah. this, this is not the truth yeah. for everyone. There's more of a tendency in female leaders to take responsibility for the okayness. Is that, does that seem to kind of, so how do we recognize that responsibility piece and start to separate it out like I, I and I recognize like yes asking some different questions but if you're not even in the yeah. place where you can recognize that yeah yeah well that's exactly where I was gonna go Celine is like it everything starts with awareness right that's why I always say the greatest gift you can give to yourself is to really know who you are because if you can't recognize the pattern you have no hope of actually stopping that that um that train of thought or that train mm. of thinking so i think the first step is always is really just about becoming aware of just how much time are you spending with other people what kinds of what kinds of things are people coming to you with because this is a dead giveaway if your team member is coming to you time and time again, asking you to solve a problem for them or wanting to pick your brain or asking uh, what, they, what they should do, that's a sign that there is an over-reliance on, on you as a leader. And I think women, again, very broad, very general, are more prone to answering that question or wanting to help others and spending that time with them but much to their uh, disadvantage because mm. then they get overburdened. So I agree with you. I think there's lots of fantastic male leaders out there that genuinely care. And I also think that they have created a boundary without having to call it a boundary. <laughs> like we, sometimes women have to actually be very purposeful in creating a boundary that just comes more naturally to them. And so I think that when we can intervene and show women how to actually create that space for themselves. And one of the biggest uh, tips I can offer, and, and this doesn't come from me, it came from uh, one of my coaches, was to forget the office door policy, or sorry, the open door policy. The open door policy is going to kill us. It's going to kill women leaders if we come to our teams and say, you can contact me at any time about anything, whenever you're feeling um, conflict or feeling low or have a question. That is actually very disempowering to team members. And it only perpetuates this over-reliance on you as a leader. So I think you have to become aware of it. You have to become crystal clear on how much time you're spending with your team members and then actively create and map out a plan for how you are going to respond differently. And I should probably back up because before you can do anything, you have to also become aware of what's driving that behavior, right? Mm. So what need am I trying to fill by actually being there for my, my employees, my direct reports for every need that they have? 
usually when you dig down, it's a belief system that is largely created, you know, through familial conditioning, through society, patriarchy. I know the dreaded patriarchy word. People are sick and tired of hearing about it, but it's true. That's the conditioning. And so what is it that's driving it? And then how do we undo it and replace it with a more self-serving belief that will draw on different behaviors? Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it's, I think that starting point of recognizing what's dry, it's like the, you know, it's a version of what's in it for me, right? What am I getting out of this? What is the, what's in it for me? Why am I doing this? Because we, we, the behaviors, especially patterns that we repeat come from that we are getting something out of it. It's not always pretty to have to admit to yourself that you're getting validation or you're feeling needed or whatever that thing that we don't really want to admit is happening, but we're always getting something out if there's a pattern. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's how we sabotage ourselves, right? That's how we continue to perpetuate the problem is if we just go straight from um, this conversation to then doing something differently and taking action, we're missing the point. All we're doing is just, you know, like lipstick on a pig. We have to actually create the change internally first. And that only comes with awareness of what the pattern is, what does it actually look like on a day-to-day basis and where did it come from and what can you replace? Cause you do, I believe anyway, that you have to replace the behavior with a new line of thinking, mm. which starts to create new neural grooves, right? That's where the neurons start firing together because we're now cre- inserting a different pattern into the way we behave and the way we respond. And Mm. that is where true change happens. Can't just go and do it, you know? And I, you know, it isn't like, because if that were, if it were that easy, you could just go to Google and say, how do I stop doing this? And then you would try to do it and you'll realize really quickly it won't work. Mm -hmm. It has to be an internally led change. Yeah, it's that intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Yeah. Kind of piece. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Um, the second thing, cause I, for once did not forget my second question, which is the story of, <laughs> of me talking to people as I go, I have two questions and I never get to the second one. So I do the exact same thing. Um, but you mentioned burnout, right? You know, that this yeah. is on the rise and, and, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. And I'm going to be even more specific in the sense that. I think there are a lot of people who experience elements of burnout, symptoms of burnout, and they never use that language and they would not even mm-hmm. necessarily connect those dots until it's way, way too late. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious if you can share, cause I know this is an area of specialty for not, not creating burnout obviously, but helping right. avoid yeah. it and manage it. Yeah. Let's be clear. Um, yeah you know, if you can share a little bit about that as well as how can people, how do women recognize it early on? How do you, before it's too late? Cause I think once it's too late, mm. it can be easy to recognize, mm-hmm. but how do we prevent Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, 
Well, I'll, I'll share a story just with my own, you know, personal example for illustration, but it's not just my story. It's many women's stories. Mm. And um, it, when I was in corporate and I was operating as a, you know, C-level executive, I was leading HR for a large company. And I, at the time, this is going back quite a few years now, but confused my high sense of urgency and my hustle, which is a term we hear a lot about now, and my responsiveness as almost my superpowers, that mm. those were the things that were going to get me ahead. And I had proof that they did because I continued to receive promotions. And so what that taught me and what that ingrained in me was that that was the way I was going to lead and continue to enjoy success. And so I made it so easy for leaders to work with me because I did have this high sense of urgency. And I always, I, I used to call it my bragging right. Like that was, that was the key to my success. And so I think what that led to, or this is not what I think I know, it led me to experiencing major panic, major anxiety, which led me to being taken on a stretcher in an emergency room in my in an in my office setting with all my colleagues looking at me and it resulted in a diagnosis of severe burnout and i had no clue that that was what i was going through i just knew how to keep going i just knew how to push and to work and i come from a family of workaholics we're very driven people and that's just what i knew how to do mm. and so I think one of the, the reason I bring this up is because if there's a woman listening to this now who does have a high sense of urgency, who is very responsive, who is, has gotten ahead because she is able to take on so much and becomes known as the go-to person, I would challenge you to rethink that position because that does make you, um, it may make you the go-to person, but not a, it will lead to the, I was a demise, but that's a little dramatic. But in my case, it led to really poor health. And it led to me having to take time off work because of that extreme anxiety. And it all came down to a misunderstood belief about what being a high achiever is. Mm. And my high sense of urgency was not anything to brag about. It was used against me. It was a use against my body. And it became, it was too late when I realized that that very characteristic that I prided myself on was the exact same characteristic that led to uh, being diagnosed with extreme anxiety. So I think that um, one of the things that would be helpful to women is understanding that just because they have characteristics that make them shine in the workplace, if taken to an extreme, they can also be the exact same characteristics that lead to burnout. So a need to know when to say no and when to pri and how to prioritize. And in fact, I would even go further and say that now it's becoming even more important you know, with the rising numbers of, of burnout, that we become very unequivocal about our 
limitations in the workplace. And what I mean by limitations is how far we will go to please others. Because when I dug down, my overachievement was not so much about having an urgent need to respond to things. When you dug down through that, it was an urgent need to be liked and an urgent need to be approved of. So that was the deeper work that I had to do in order to understand why I kept going even when I was exhausted and ignored my body's symptoms as a result. Yeah. It's thank you for sharing that story. I, I, you know, I know it's a personal story and I appreciate it very much. Um, and I think it's helpful for anyone who's listening or watching to hear that. So it's not, you know, a theoretical something or other. So yeah. I, you know, I very much appreciate that. Um, and it makes me, you know, one of the things that I think of when I hear this is, I think this is not only women that do this, but I think women do it differently, is we undervalue the things that are really valuable about us as leaders in the workplace and overvalue the superficial things that someone can approve mm. and see, like responding mm. quickly, like, yeah. you know, whatever. So we, we think, oh, well, my value comes from these superficial things because they're easy to see as opposed to, you know, my value comes from being thoughtful and taking my time yeah. and, you know, coming up with the best response that I can or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I think women are just much, much more prone to that mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons. And, and mm -hmm. I think separating that, you know, approval, people pleasing is definitely a piece of it. And that's just it. When you were speaking, I was like, oh, it's really interesting because immediately I think, yeah, I think we value the obvious easy to see thing and miss what our real value is. Yeah, I love that you said that because it points to a real desire to trust yourself, right? I think that that element of self-trust is so deeply powerful and, mm. and so deeply um, moving that we underestimate its its impact. So mm -hmm. yes, I may go and do something for someone else and I get that instant dopamine rush of knowing I received a, an A plus or a great work, Teresa, or whatever it is, but nothing has ever come close to comparing that feeling to the feeling that I received when I knew how to create boundaries, and I mean boundaries that were flexible, that still met the needs of my employer, that still set me apart as a valuable leader, but were also self-honoring. That self-honoring piece was never there before. I worked to, to get something. I worked to impress other people. I never knew what it was like to work and, and have that be enough that that mm. sense of self-trust that I did a fantastic job despite whether or not they tell me I did and so that chasing that proving energy is what I would call it that I had was something that led to that burnout it was yeah. I was always trying to prove myself and that's an energy that I think 
a lot of women feel and have, but don't know exactly how to settle it down without having some intervention as mm. to what are they believing to be true about about themselves and about their about their work and how they show up in their work. Yeah, and it's and again, what you say that and what comes to mind is what are women believing to be true about the idea of boundaries and having mm -hmm. limits or lines or whatever you want to call them, even flexible ones that they're often so much more resistant to setting them yeah. than men are. What is, I know, honestly, I think there's a couple of things. Um, and I know I experienced it too. When I think back, one is just, an inability to be assertive, like a real difficulty in being able to just say, if you want me to do that, then this other priority is going to have to move aside for the time being. So I think one is we aren't always raised or have the skills to be able to, and I say assert, but it's not even really assert. It's just, it's just speaking the truth, speaking directly about the impact of a decision or saying yes to something. So I think it's having that full command of your voice would be one. Um, I think there's a real deep fear that if they do, it, it will lead to repercussions. So there's a fear that it will diminish their status or it will lead them in worst case scenario to be let go. And I think the other thing too is, is that when we do try to, uh, assert a boundary or state a boundary, if you don't actually believe it to be true, it comes across as weak and it comes across mm. as hollow. You know, so for example, I've seen women say things like, you know, can I please ask the question or can, can I say no to this? We're asking for permission when we don't need to be asking for permission. We just need to state with confidence why it is that we're at where our priority needs to shift. So I think, you know, the, the fear of being, of taking control of your voice and also saying it with full self-trust that you're, you're saying it because there is truth to it. And there's a greater good that comes out of asserting that boundary, both for the organization and for your well-being. that, we sometimes they've come across a bit hollow or fall flat because mm. we're not really saying it with conviction. We're saying it almost like we're reading it off a script and that doesn't come across as natural. It only comes across as natural when you have that inner self-trust that you deserve to, you know, create a boundary or a line in the sand when it comes to certain things. I love that. I think that inner self-trust and that um, there's alignment in there when it shows up. Like mm -hmm. it, there mm -hmm. is, without that alignment, without that, you know, it feels like it's actually coming from a place that has been thought out and it's not just a script that you're reading. People, I think people can sense that. And I think it also yeah. helps women feel more confident about that. Yeah. So I, I, I really like that, the inner self trust piece yeah. that you were talking about for sure. You know, I always look at it this way too, Celine. It's like, you know, when we are 
working or <clears throat> operating or, or communicating in our kind of, you know, that term zone of genius, then we're most natural, right? Mm -hmm. So when I am communicating about a topic that I love, I am very natural. I, I don't have to think about it because I know it, I've lived it. I, you know, I'm passionate about it. It's the same thing with boundaries. If you, if you believe, truly believe that this is good for you and good for the organization and the deliverables that they want you to achieve, then it doesn't come across as forced mm. and inauthentic. It comes across like just rolling off your tongue. And yeah, you may need to practice it a few times because it's a, it's like learning a new language. But the more you operate from the sense of you being who you really are and mm. doing things for the right reasons, I always call it like when you're operating from your higher mind, then then whatever you have to say will come across a lot more naturally than it would if you were to force yourself to use a boundary statement that your coach gave you that you're just going to try out, but you don't really believe it to be true. You know what yeah, I mean? Like totally. it has to be a felt experience or else it's going to feel really icky. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really important to, it's really important to point that out because it's easy to read an article that says, here's how you set boundaries. And then you walk in and you say, I'm setting my boundary. I mean, don't do that. But you know what I mean? <laughs> I like this is how, what my boundaries are for the, and it's not, it doesn't won't be often... received well. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's something you said that I thought was really interesting. And it, you know, what popped up in mind, this is complete curiosity, totally just connected in my brain may not be a thing. I'm going to own this. <laughs> um, the joys of a thought experiment. But when you were talking about, you know, you mentioned that um, women, not again, not all women, but some women are prone to asking the question, like, is it okay to ask this question? can I say no to this thing? I wonder if, and I'm recognizing, I'm going to ask this question. It's not like I'm looking for you to say a hundred percent. This is always the truth. I'm curious if this is even a possibility, but I hear that. And I think, I wonder if some of that tendency comes from knowing what it's like to not be asked for consent for certain things, to not be asked mm -hmm. for permission or if it's okay that you over exaggerate that in inappropriate situations as a result. So I say that because I think, you know, we both work as coaches. There are times where I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to say, are you okay if I ask a very personal question or are you okay if yeah. I go in this, because I'm getting your consent inside yeah. of this container yeah. to go a specific way. And I want to make that really clear. This is a moment that you can absolutely say no to. And I'll always emphasize it. You can say, no, we can go a different route but there is something here that I would like. So there is a time and yeah. space for that. And yeah, I, oh yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Interrupt. I'm. Oh, sorry. I know. I was just going to say that, you know, context matters. Like we can't take the context out of the situation. So what you're saying is absolutely true from what I know as a coach, but also from what I knew as an executive, when I was asking, may I ask a question or can I say something? The motive wasn't pure. The motive didn't, the motive to ask did not come from a place of trying to understand the point of view of the other or um, honoring a boundary that they may have right. about whether or not they want to talk about something or whatever it might be. It came from a place of minimizing 
my input, my value, my my question. So I think most women will be will be able to um, pinpoint for themselves. Am I am I saying this because there's a there's there's some underlying fear there that I'm like I'm not at the same level as them to be able to ask a question. There's like a mm. dynamic, like a that mm-hmm. a, that that play, like a power play, versus doing what you're suggesting, which is I hundred percent agree. Um, when you're leading someone and you want to offer an observation, or if you want to ask them a, a question that might be helpful, absolutely, that that is important that you gain consent, right? So I think the context is so important, and it's also why it's so tricky for women to navigate it on their own, which you know you and I both know as coaches that you know the context of a situation matters, and that's what yes. we can help women with. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I appreciate you really clearly delineating the, the, the coming into it because I would hope that it's something that most women can think about, which is, am I, am I asking for consent because it's going to serve the other person and this situation in a specific way versus Am I asking because they're, this is being driven by fear or I don't want to overstep or whatever, yeah. you know, I think exactly. that delineation is, is really important and helpful because I, you know, I hear, I've seen this, I'm sure you have, I'm sure you have as well, where it's easy to blur those lines. It's easy for, if you're not thinking about it, that you, um, you know, you just, you ask the question, you ask for yep. permission, you, yep. ask, you know, and there are really, the reasons are really different. The context absolutely matters. And knowing yep. that and stepping into it, I think is helpful for, you know, for women to think about. It's like, I always think of this when people say all the changes in languages that are happening, right? So they'll say, especially to women, don't ever say just, I just have a question about this. Don't say that. Don't ever say, you know, um, sorry, I'm late for something. Thank you for your patience or whatever. Like they, all yeah. of these, these things. I and know. sometimes that is really wonderful. And absolutely, we are prone to say just and minimize in inappropriate time. However, it's not a hard <laughs> and fast rule that always applies. I know. And I can't remember, like sometimes you just can't remember. Right. So I know it's, I, I don't want, um, listeners to this or to come to walk away from this thinking like, well, how do I know? And what, if, if I say this, it's wrong. And if I say that it's wrong, I, I think that almost puts in like another layer of undue pressure on us, which we don't need yeah. as women. But what I do think is, um, or noticing the situations or the circumstances in which you feel, and it's a, it's, it becomes an intuitive exercise that you are asking for permission out of a different uh, motivation. So you just start noticing. So for example, um, to make this drive home a little bit easier for your listeners is just notice when you say certain things. So mm-hmm. do you say the same things to females than you do to males? So for example, what I notice is that I would never, 
you know, say, ask for permission if I was speaking to a female leader, but I did it all the time when I spoke to male leaders. So I was able to distinguish very clearly that, wait a minute, I don't do this with female mm. leaders. I only do it with men. Hmm. Super curious about that. And so I started to analyze how I use language with men. And so I would just say, start with your most um, obvious examples in your career or, or in your professional life and just start to notice, yeah, I always ask for permission to leave early or I always ask for permission to um, uh, have a meeting. Whereas maybe I can play around with saying, I need to leave early today. I'm taking my daughter to such and such, not asking for permission for it, especially if you're working at the more executive level ranks, you don't need to ask for permission. Um, so just noticing in which situations and circumstances that you do that. And then how do you feel afterwards, right? Does this feel good or does it just, this feel like I'm, you know, I, I want to say diminutive, but just really kind of like waiting for others to tell me that I have permission to do or say something. Um, yeah, I just think start noticing the words you use. And then, you know, if you do have the luxury of a coach, then work with them to say, is this negating me and my career and where I want to go? Or is this advancing my, my ambition and where I want to go? Um, I think that's a good place to start. I love that. And I would add, and I'm going to, I have a question to wrap this up, but I want to add, I think, yeah. um, I think there's also a lot of benefit in if you're struggling to find the language that you use, for example, with men versus women, if you're struggling to notice it, then sometimes starting with how do I feel around this person or stepping into something with this person can be a mm -hmm. starting point to then start to pay attention to even that situation or person or yeah. meeting or whatever. Um, yeah. Because I, I am sure there are some women who are like, I definitely there's it's an awareness. Sometimes it's hard to even yeah. parse out like I use different language in these ways or I'm doing this. If they don't even have the awareness of how they feel in certain mm. situations or around certain people. Good point. I'm so glad you addressed that. I couldn't have said it better myself. Like, I am sure there are people in our life, in women's lives and in your listeners that are like, you know, I always, there's this one person or two people that when I go into their office, I start to feel like I shrink inside Yeah. or I can't find the words or I, I find myself going silent and not speaking up. So you, your body generally knows. So the fact that you called out that feeling element to it is so important. That's absolutely right. Um, so before we wrap this up, I always ask the question, you know, is there anything that we didn't get into that you want to make sure the listeners hear or something that, you know, you would like to emphasize or no, you can just say, I think we're good and <laughs> many options, but just in case there's something, I want to give you the opportunity to, to wrap yeah. it up there. You know, I, I think the only thing I'll say, and it, it's it's just something I so firmly believe, is that um, as women leaders, everything starts with us, right? It's an inside job. 
So to be successful at anything, it requires that we first become really, really clear about uh, what we believe to be true and how we believe, how we think about ourselves. Mm. Once we master that, then you can lead through a crisis. You can lead through a difficult, you know, relationship in such a much more self-aware, emotionally intelligent way, because you're able to see what you're bringing to the table and how to counteract some of those self-sabotage mechanisms that are mm. kind of underneath the surface and, and at play. So I guess a very verbose way of saying, like, never underestimate the power of understanding yourself, like ever. I do not think that was verbose. And I think it's a really important <laughs> place to, I think it's important to emphasize that. And I think it's a great place to kind of wrap it up and leave everyone yeah. thinking about it. So, you know, thank you, Teresa, for being on the show and for coming and chatting with me about this. I think it's a really important topic and I very much appreciate your time and energy and insight into all of the, you know, the pieces we got into burnout and women leadership and, you know, female leadership and all of that. So thank you very much for your time and insight. Oh, it was my pleasure, Celine. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on the Leading Through Crisis podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a minute to rate and review us on your podcast app. If you're interested in learning more about any of our guests, you can find us online at www.leadingthroughcrisis.ca.